This is Live Well Talk on Heart Failure. I'm Dr. Dustin Arnold, Chief Medical Officer at UniPoint Health, St. Luke's Hospital. My guest today and my colleague is Dr. Matthew McMahon, a cardiologist with St. Luke's Heart Care Clinic. Welcome. Hi, thanks, Dustin. I, this, this thought just occurred to me prior to this that, you know, if we say kidney failure, you know, that's like an end stage thing, right? right. Liver failure you're going on a transplant list or dying. But heart failure is actually something that people can live 10 years with, uh, or if not longer. And so it, it it sounds a lot worse than probably what it is. But uh, I know that we've had significant advances, at least in my career, and I know you've seen them too. So why don't you just tell our listeners, what is heart failure? Yeah, thanks, Dustin. Well, heart failure is actually a state where your heart, due to either a, a structural problem or a functional problem, either doesn't empty well or doesn't fill well. So uh, most typically, we think that the heart's weakened and it just doesn't pump enough blood around the body. That's sort of an oversimplistic uh, way to look at it uh, because half of the people who have heart failure actually have a heart that empties normally. Uh, they have a, uh, they don't have a weakened heart. And so there's actually two flavors of uh, heart failure out there, if you will. One is that where the heart doesn't empty properly, it doesn't squeeze well, and the other is where it's actually the problem is that the blood can't get back into the heart. The heart doesn't fill normally. So uh, people do live uh, uh, with heart failure a long time, and uh, we're, we're getting better at uh, helping that uh, yeah. continue. I, I, I mean, I can remember being a medical student early 90s and Captopril was brand new. And that was kind of a game changer as far as people living longer. If you want to talk about what ACE numbers are and treatment of heart failure at some point, but, uh, but, but you, you know, that, that was a game changer because you, if you get had heart failure, you, it was a death sentence. Yeah. Historically, you know, uh, I remember my training a bit before yours, but, uh, um, uh, heart failure at that time, treatment was focused on symptoms. That's all you did was try to keep people comfortable. And, and so they weren't having all this trouble. And primarily only treatment at that time was actually uh, 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 diuretics uh, and uh, digoxin. Yeah. Uh, that's what we treated people with, with heart failure. Uh, we've come a long ways on the treatment that we now use preferentially medications that we thought were forbidden. We would never use these in somebody with, I remember being told, you don't ever give a beta blocker to somebody yep. with heart failure. You don't ever do that. Well, you're gonna kill them. Well, now it's a standard of care. Yep. Yeah, things things definitely changed uh, from that standpoint. Now, could I, I think it'd be good for, because you get kind of confused uh, you know, somebody's told that their ejection fraction is 60%. And well, that's that's a D on most grading scales, you know, uh, if not an F. Right. And, and so, you know, then you have to explain, well, that's 60% is leaving and 40% is leaving. Could you take us through like kind of the class of heart failure, uh, how patients may present and how they, w what direction they go? Yeah, um, well, most typically patients will present uh, with a complaint that uh, I'm, have, I'm having trouble doing what I have done in the past. I'm more tired. I have less energy. And in particularly, breathlessness uh, is a, a common symptom, probably the most common symptom uh, that uh, motivates people to uh, seek out uh, attention. 
There may be other signs with that. They may notice some uh, difficulty with the swelling. Uh, there are classic symptoms where people will awaken in the middle of the night, suddenly breathless, need to sit up on the edge of the bed or prop themselves up to breathe. Uh, those are pretty typical symptoms of heart failure. Uh, they're, they're, they've been around long enough that they actually have nice uh, long-standing names. We have paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. We have orthopnea. Uh, and so we've got all these long old names uh, that, uh, out there that describe that. Uh, we've had perhaps one of the newer symptoms uh, uh, that's been recognized as being heart failure is uh, the, the new term bendopnea. Uh, they describe people who bend over and get short of breath as now at times associated with heart failure. So they've just sort of combined the terms uh, bend apnea. Is the, you'll see that described in some of the literature now. So it's kind of a cute one uh, that we've come up with uh, some new names for old symptoms. Um, so when patients show up with this, the, the concern is, are these symptoms heart-related? You're right. I have patients come in and tell me, oh, my God, my heart's only working at 45%. Yeah, yeah. I'm doomed. I'm doomed. I'm doomed. Yep. And I go up and I say, well, you know, normal is 50. And so uh, that's a common measurement. We make the ejection fraction. We estimate the amount of blood the heart holds once it fills up. We estimate then how much is in it when it squeezes, how much is left over, and we do the mathematics. and call that percentage or the fraction that's ejected, an ejection fraction, that's the standard measurement that we use to assess the degree of severity of heart failure, at least in those people with a weakened heart. Uh, we can have people who have severe heart failure with an ejection fraction of 60, perfectly normal, but yet they still have symptoms of heart failure. That group tends to be older, uh, tends to be more women, uh, the, the, those with reduced ejection fraction are more commonly male, although a lot of women do as well, and uh, tend to be a younger subset. So uh, diagnosis is almost always initially made uh, based upon symptoms and then the standard test, the echocardiogram uh, to uh, uh, take pictures of the heart and look at it. Now, what are the, what, can you walk us through the top three causes of heart failure? I mean, I have a pretty good idea, but what, what is the, the most common things that cause someone to have heart failure? Yeah, uh, again, a little bit depends on the age group. We're going to talk about those with a weakened heart. Um, the most common causes out there are coronary artery disease. Somebody's had a heart attack, damaged their heart, uh, or ischemic disease where the heart muscle itself is being deprived of oxygen due to blockages. Uh, the next most common cause probably is a, a group of people we call, I don't know, it's idiopathic. Uh, the term means uh, literally, I don't know. And so um, it, it's uh, uh, clearly un, undefined. I believe as we learn more about genomics and medicine, we're going to be able to identify these subset of people exactly why that is. And then uh, uh, another group of people can be high blood pressure, poorly controlled high blood pressure, which can uh, affect the heart long term. Uh, if it's uncontrolled for a long period of time. And uh, the really other fourth part in there, uh, there's a, a, there is a group of people who have hereditary diseases of uh, 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 heart muscle weakness, uh, uh, familial cardiomyopathy, another term for those people without, uh, for heart failure, some people will use the term cardiomyopathy as well, uh, uh, heart muscle sickness. So when, it, if I'm a patient and I'm under your care for newly onset heart failure, 
the, the first thing you're going to do is find out, run through the checklist of things that you can treat and fix. That's correct. And then, and then you're going to start some medicines. What are, what is the philosophy on medication management? Ooh, it's, it's evolving. It's changing dramatically here this last uh, couple of years. Um, historically, uh, I would mention that we treated people with diuretics to remove, uh, to help them get comfortable. And diuretics were actually considered the cornerstone of therapy. Well, now many of our patients with significant heart failure aren't, aren't taking diuretics regularly. They may use them intermittently if they need to. Uh, there had been three pillars historically of the management of uh, uh, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Those with a, and that's a group I'm going to focus on at the moment, is those people who have a weakened heart. Those pillars were beta blockers that I talked about, medicines like uh, toprol, uh, bisoprolol, and, and the, um, carvedilol. Those are the three beta blockers. Then the ACE inhibitors or uh, angiotensin receptor blockers, preferred a, a ACE inhibitors as, and the angiotensin receptor blockers were an alternative if they couldn't tolerate. I think people are using them kind of interchangeably now, to be honest with you. Um, that, that was the second class. The third class was the aldosterone antagonist medicines like spironolactone or eplerinone. Uh, we've recently now uh, replaced in many of our patients the ACE inhibitor R uh, ARB group with uh, Entresto, a uh, ARNI, an ARNI uh, is the, the now recommended medication is with regard to reduce hospitalization, improve symptoms uh, compared to uh, ACE inhibitors. So and that's probably where we should be using the ideally strongly recommended by the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association and called out in our most recent heart failure guidelines. And then this past year, and again, emphasize this year, uh, a class of medications that had been ostensibly uh, diabetic medications had been uh, have been discovered to have profound benefit in patients with heart failure, and that's the SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, the use of either uh, dapagliflozin, which was first approved, and now empagliflozin. Both of those are approved for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And the American College of Cardiology and their guidelines, haven't gotten into the published guidelines, but in many of their expert consensus documents now, say there are four pillars, no longer three, that these are the four classes of medications that should be used in our heart failure population. Yeah, you, I know you had made the comment that uh, the SGL, they, they are just simply uh, heart medications that happen to lower your blood sugar. That's exactly my yeah, approach. Yeah, I believe yeah, I that strongly. That. And that's, I've said that repeatedly. It's uh, uh, that uh, they just happen to, to the lower blood. I think they're actually a, probably a better uh, heart medication than they are diabetic medication, but clearly uh, they uh, reduce cardiovascular uh, mortality and morbidity. And so, uh, yeah, they're a great class of drugs that need to be have wider use. And of course, they're new and so they're more expensive. Same with Entresto. That's the most difficult thing about them is that they, uh, they're generally all pretty well tolerated with their specific problems, however, but uh, cost tends to be a limiting factor in that yeah. sense for some of our patients. Well, you know, we've well, on the podcast, we've done a lot on COVID-19 and, you know, science comes up and I I think the narrative you've given here just, you know, science is never settled. Science is the search for truth, not the truth. And, you know, here's a good example how that 
common, that that drive to find out what is the best and how it's changed over your career. Uh, it's just it that's just that's how science works. And, right. uh, you know, it's never settled. So well, what could what could a person do to prevent heart failure? Can't pick your relatives. So we know. That yeah. You're yeah. yeah. You know, um, I, I think the key is uh, uh, prevention here is going to try to uh, don't get sick. And so. You know, a, a good healthy lifestyle is probably the background. If we realize the most common cause of heart failure with a weakened heart are heart attacks and ischemic disease, well, uh, you know, do what you can not to uh, develop that. You know, uh, know what your cholesterol is, know what your blood pressure is, know what your blood sugar is, and, and good preventative health care with regard to um, lessening the likelihood of developing chronic disease is going to be important. Um, you're right, you can't pick your relatives if you're going to get a familial cardiomyopathy, you can't do that. But at the same time, if you're healthy, otherwise it may have less impact on your life. So uh, it, it tends to do that. And in our heart failure group with preserved ejection fraction, we tend to see that I said that's an older group of people and we can't really fix that very well. Uh, that happens to all of us, we hope. Uh, but being overweight is a problem, uh, uh, having a, a sleep apnea not treated, a lot of these other comorbidities, associated sicknesses that uh, you need to make certain that you keep yourself as in good shape as possible. Well, we we always uh, like to end the, when we have guests like yourself on here to find out, you know, why would a kid from Delaware County, Iowa, end up becoming a cardiologist? Why? How did you gravitate towards that? I think we probably all have to look back and say, why, how did I make that decision? How did that happen? I remember specifically being impressed uh, as a medical student in Des Moines, um, sitting in a cardiology on my cardiology rotation with a, a teacher who uh, impressed me with regard to the utilization of technology uh, in uh, cardiology. Cardiology is a very technically oriented specialty. We have all sorts of little tools and toys. At that time, all we had were EKGs and stress tests. But during that period of time, this new tool became available, echocardiography. And we were making measurements and we were drawing clinical conclusions and assessing physiology. Uh, the cardiologist did that. Most other places, you know, you did x-rays and somebody else told you the result. Uh, in cardiology, you did the EKG and you read it yourself. You did the stress test, you interpreted it yourself. Uh, you did the echo, you interpreted it yourself. So it's the ability to use technology that you'd use that I would use to uh, make a, or make a diagnosis or assist in patient care. So I really enjoy the technology and cardiology is obviously with stents and now valve replacements, uh, all this type of stuff in the cath lab. Uh, it, it's really, uh, uh, it's been a fun ride. Yeah, I mean, cardiology right now kind of reminds me of like Apple computers in the late 90s, the Cold War ends. So now they can, you know, share some of this technology that they had kept because they didn't want, you know, the, the Russians to have the right. Soviets at that time. And so it's just exploding with new technology, just, you know, right. each month. And I, as you pointed out, structural heart disease and the things that they're, the, those guys are doing, it just each month, it seems like there's a new right. uh, device coming out, which is pretty cool. So, well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule uh, to talk about heart failure. Again, that was Dr. Matthew McMahon. He's a cardiologist at St. Luke's Heart Care Clinic. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, thank you, Dustin. Thank you for listening to Live Well Talk On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your family, friends, neighbors, strangers. 
about our podcast. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, be well.